0: I don't have my laptop up here because I'm doing some amazing uh, techno show up, up on the screen or anything like that. Uh, simple fact is, my kids did something with my my iPad charger, and <laughs> so I don't I don't have an iPad to use this morning for my notes. Um, I'm going to be talking about Esther today, and we're we're continuing our series uh, Women in the Bible, and um, when we we talked about doing this series, one of the first people that jumped out in my mind to do was Esther, and I'm uh, sorry to say that I regret making that decision because it was much more difficult to go into than I had assumed. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I read the Book of Esther, um, and you know I think we know all know the story, and I think we all probably imagine tidbits that are not there or blow up things that are um, probably smaller parts of the story, and I think I thought, man, Esther is going to be a great example of a feminist and a hero, you know, and it's not the case. <laughs> um, so I'm, my talk this morning is actually a little more technical than I usually uh, do, so I'm going to talk a little bit about read, how to read the Old Testament, and I know Mike shared a bit about reading apocalyptic literature a couple of weeks ago, um, but because of because reading the book of Esther um, really got me into seeing this book in a different way and, and kind of reading it in detail and, and preparing for this talk um, I saw some things that uh, that I'll get into in a second but first I have a preview to show you and Paul's going to throw that up there An empire on the brink of war. The money may be raised by the confiscation of Jewish wealth and property. First, we must kill them all. Every last one of them. An orphan who became a queen. Suppose, my lady, the man offered you the kingdom. The only gift I would accept is your heart. I should give you a different name. Esther of Susa. A secret that could change everything if you've revealed this to anyone you will surely perish then it perish this fall she found the courage. faith. This is my past, my present, and my future. All of it is yours. They found their destiny. Luke Goss, John Reese Davies, John Noble, with Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, and introducing Tiffany DuPont. Amazing. The fact is that, that Esther actually really is a great story, and it lends itself to like a Hollywood thing. Um, the other fact is that Hollywood incredibly embellishes <laughs> the story. Um, so let me just start um, because I think it's important to to preempt what I say about Esther with a bit about reading the Old Testament. Um, most people don't have the uh, chance or um, privilege to go to any kind of theological college, and most people wouldn't want to, and I don't blame you. Um, actually, I quite enjoyed it. Um, there were very difficult times, and sometimes I felt, even in theological college, my faith was being stretched. Um, but one of the things that I did learn was uh, a technical word called hermeneutics, and that's how to read the Bible, um, because there's a lot that's involved. We read it, when we typically read it, we read it from a mindset as if this was taking place within our own kind of culture our own understanding of how people live and stuff like that though we know it's historical though we know this stuff is happening in a distant place and we really don't understand the culture and the language and all that stuff and and so we often read into the old testament um, our own kind of ideas and thoughts and stuff, and so one of the things that I want to just touch on before we go into it is is this idea of hermeneutics and how to read the Old Testament so as evangelicals as evangelicals, we typically read a kind of the Old Testament we think of as a direct kind of download from god it's it's every single word without error is god 's own words and um, and i 'm not going to detract from that, but I think that that 's probably um, uh, a little bit on the side of, um, it doesn't give rain for the culture and the language of the people to speak through what God was showing them. And so, I lean a little bit away from that. Catholics and Orthodox uh, also see the Old Testament, and we're speaking spe- specifically today about the Old Testament, as God's word. But also, as, as tradition, and not the sole authority. So, they combine it with tradition, um, the tradition of the church in their case, and I think that's that's important too because um, it is, after all, the tradition of the church that gave us our canon. So in, in the Council of Nicaea, I believe it was, and I could be getting that wrong because I haven't studied it in a while, um, we kind of came up with which books would go into the Old and the New Testament. The Jewish people had mostly solidified their canon by that point probably in the first or second century um, after Jesus, Um, and possibly in response to Christians using the Old Testament. Um, During the time of Jesus, there were a lot of books that are not in our Old Testament, um, that were still considered, at least by some, as Scripture. Some of those are called deuterocanonical books. Others are called the Apocrypha, which we'd be familiar with. Um, books like uh, Maccabees and Ezra's and other additions to some of the stories in the Old Testament. But um, these books that we solidified as a canon, we solidified f- several hundred years after the time of Jesus. So the early Greek Christians, the ones that came straight after Jesus... Um, actually saw the Old Testament, most of them saw the Old Testament as allegory. They saw that the Old Testament led to who Christ was, and it pointed to Christ in many different ways, foreshadowing is, is a word we use, um, and so a lot of them said that the Old Testament was actually just allegory, and all the historical books, all the, the Torah and stuff was like that was only there just really to point us towards Christ, and sometimes you hear Christians saying stuff like that. Um, And I think that that there's truth in that. I think there's truth in all of these these views. Um, And it's when we get stuck right into one that I think we can begin to miss the point. Modern linguistic and textual scholarship really varies greatly on uh, its interpretation from completely skeptical, like none of this stuff is true, it's all legend, it's all just made up, to um, acceptance, but with some important qualifications. So, for example, much of the Torah... Um, shows linguistic usage that came from the exile period. So we we recognize that the Torah was um, probably written down during the time when the Jews were in Babylon. Um, certainly we think, and, and most accepting scholars would say, that that's passed down from oral tradition. Um, the Jews um, would say that the Old Testament is the word of God, but they view each section very differently. So they would say that the Torah whereas we, we recognize linguistically that it um, was written down during the exile period, or at least adapted, redacted during that period because of the text that we have. They see it as, as given directly to Moses on Sinai. Um, but then there's also the writings, which is the poetry, psalms, and proverbs, um, and the history books, that's all considered the writings. And then there's the prophets, and the prophets the Jews would consider uh, as writing down what God is showing them uh, through some, some degree of interpretation of their own. Um, and then the, the writings uh, were almost purely uh, the work of the author themselves in the context that they were writing, though inspired by God. So, and it's, it's really difficult to not say something's inspired by God when your entire nation is theocratic. So everybody believed in God, nearly everybody believed in God and had some kind of connection with that relationship. So anything that they're going to write down is going to have that perspective in it. And so we can see that when we read the Old Testament. So the the important thing to get out here is anytime that uh, we approach a religious text, we have to take all of those kind of views into consideration. Um, and whatever our view is, we must not read into a text that's... Uh, that which is what we wanted to say. So all of the Old Testament, whether directly from God or whether written by man, inspired by God, or written by man who at least had a view of God tightly within the writing of it, they were writing from their cultural perspective and their linguistic perspective. They were writing in a specific time and they were writing to a very specific people, a specific audience. So the Old Testament wasn't simply written as a religious text. It's the story of a nation a nation that followed the one God, for sure, um, the one God who created all things, but it's their story. And so we have to recognize that because we as Christians, and most of us who are not Jewish Christians by our uh, ethnicity or background, uh, have to recognize that the Old Testament is a Jewish book. It's, It's a book of the people of Israel. It is in the Word of God. It is in the Bible, and it is Scripture for us but it has a context and we have to recognize that we're reading the story of a people and a people that's not usually us. So we are using, we're borrowing in some senses their history, their background, their culture to speak into our understanding of God. And that's okay, because we, we recognize that God was speaking to this people, but when, but when we read the Bible and when we, especially when we read the Old Testament, It's really important that we recognize that we're reading an Israeli book. It's a book of the people of Israel. And so we have to read into it the things that are important to them and not just the things that are important to us. The reason I say all this stuff coming to Esther is because Esther is a book that actually um, really kind of embodies this whole idea. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned. In fact, he's not even alluded to. So we have to look at it and go, well, why is that? There were certainly Jews, and Jews by their nature would be understood to have a relationship in some form or another with God. But And some of the things, some of Mordecai's and Esther's actions were certainly directed by their understanding of God and the Torah and their own faith. But it is primarily a book of... Israel's history and I think that the other purpose was to um, To share with the people the origins of the festival of Purim, which was um, Talked about at the end of the book of, of Esther Which is a Jewish festival that celebrates this this time, so um, I think part of it Had to do with that. It's certainly a political book and I would say political more than religious because it speaks of the people of Israel and their their success and their uh, victory. And all history books come from the perspective of the victor. (laughs) So even that might be taking, you might need to take a grain of salt. So I just want to read the first few verses of Esther. This is what happened during the times of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles in the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty." When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of Porphyry, whatever that is, marble, uh, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So, in reading that, it sounds like the beginning of a, a history lesson, and, and it was. Um, but the question is, and this comes through the scholarship, is, is the book of Esther actually history? Is it legend or is it revelation? Most scholars believe, and I'll stop there because most scholars believe what they want to believe. Um, <laughs> they will study the words of other scholars that back up their, their views. And so in my study of Esther... I read a lot of scholars who would say most scholars believe that Esther never really existed, that the story is a Hebrew fable made up in the days of the Maccabees to, um, to show the victory of the Jews and to rile them up against uh, in revolt and to show how victorious they were. So most scholars will say most scholars believe that. But then there are other scholars who take a wider view. And it all depends on what you study. So it's true that there is no mention Or possibly no mention of Esther in any extra biblical histories. Herodotus was one of the major historians who spoke of this uh, era in Persian history, and he doesn't mention Esther or Mordecai or the revolt or the story that takes place in Esther. And so many scholars would say, well there is no mention of Esther, there's no mention of Esther in the annals of the Persian kings, so this didn't really happen, It's, it's a legend, it's Um, not true now there are other scholars who are probably again coming from their own bias of wanting to prove that the Bible is true who have found evidence for various things and so to look at their views and see they're not just looking at the writings of for example Herodotus but they're looking at archaeology they're looking at etymology which is another uh, which is where words come from and names come from Um, there's possibly some evidence. There is no evidence that the story took place, but at least the people and some of the surroundings look very familiar. Uh, And one of the reasons I read uh, the beginning of that is because everything that it says in that beginning actually was true. Xerxes was ruler over 127 satraps. Um, The description of his palace is true from archaeological finds there's, um, in, later on in the book, it talks about um, where his chambers were in, revel- in relation to the court. And that is exactly true on what they found. So there are there are things, certainly if it was written, it was written by someone who knew Susa and knew it in that time period and knew of the king. The writing is dated around um, about 100 years after the events take place. Most Jews would say... Uh, uh, um, Conservative Jews would say that it was, it was written down as a adaptation of a story actually told by Mordecai, um, which could possibly be true because, again, there is very strong evidence of eyewitness to at least the areas and the things around the king's time. So, if we look in the right places, there's a fair bit of evidence. Xerxes' rule and personality really come through. Herodotus and others wrote about who, what type of king he was. He was he was on one level very kind and very giving. On another level, he was very harsh and strong-handed. That comes through in the story. The description of the palace, as I said. The etymology of names. So Esther and Mordecai are both, neither one of those are Hebrew names. Both of them are actually Babylonian names. Um, Mordecai comes from uh, the word servant of Marduk, which is Marduk is the Babylonian head god. And Esther is a version of Ishtar, which is the female um, high-ranking god in Babylonian history. Haman is also another god uh, named after another god. So following the etymology of various names, they have actually found there was a high-ranking official in Xerxes' court. He was actually an accountant, which makes sense if you look at Mordecai's story, because he numbers fare a lot in his telling. Um, he was an accountant in Xerxes' court. Um, Esther, that's a little bit harder, but I'll get to that in a second. So uh, the other thing is that there are no record of Jews in the Persian Empire until shortly after this story takes place. And if you just look at that, and you would, if a, a scholar was looking at it, they would say, well, there's no record of Jews, so that obviously didn't happen. But if you see that the, suddenly there is a record of Jews after such a victory as takes place, and if truly Esther was Xerxes' queen and she was a Jewess, then suddenly you would find favor shortly after that, and we'll see that as well. So, So who was Esther? A YouTuber who posted a clip from the film that I uh, just gave a preview one night with the king commented, this is one of my favorite stories from the Bible and one of my favorite love stories. So is Esther really a Besotin Cinderella type? The fact is she was probably more likely a sex slave initially. When, When the king decided to select a new queen, they sent and they captured young virgins from the various places, and they took them to um, the harem where they were then trained. And in the movie, it's very, very um, pious and and whitewashed and clean, she reads to the king all night, and he falls in love with her. The likelihood is that she granted him sexual favours, and he was very pleased with that. And they would have done this in choosing the new queen. Um, so that that's the likely story of who she was. Uh, I think that's important, because we don't want to make somebody again into a pious representation of who they weren't. She was a human. She was captured by the king's men and taken into service um, with hundreds of other young women who became his concubines. But she was the one, in the end, selected to be the queen, the replacement of Vashti. Um, A very quick word about Vashti. If there is a feminist in this story, it's her. Because she's the one who actually, when the king was in his party and everybody was drunk and he called her forward to show her great beauty, what he really means is come strip down and do a show for my people. And she said, no, I'm not doing it. So if there is a feminist in this story, it's really her. I'll leave that there. So Esther, um, again, no historians have found anywhere in the writings of a queen named Esther. In fact, Xerxes has a very specific queen, and her name is Amestris. And this is where etymology comes in, because if you look at Amestris in the Persian and you take the, the Persian letters, it could very likely be that that is a version of Esther. Um, you drop the A, the M. So it's basically M-S-T-R, and Esther in the Hebrew is S-T-R. So I, there's, there's a strong chance. But that's, again, we're speculating, and we want to make sure that we always stay that when we're, state that when we're looking at something historical. Um, people don't want to believe that Esther was the same as Amestris. Because the historians, um, the Greek historians that, that have written about this period of Persian history, Herodotus being one and a number of others, uh, don't show her in a very good light. Um, but we have to remember that these were written from political um, viewpoints. So Herodotus says... I'm informed that Amestris, the wife of Xerxes, when she had grown old, made return for her own life to the God who is said to be beneath the earth by burying twice seven children of Persia, of Persians, who were men of renown, i.e. burying them alive. Now, Jews would say there is no way that Esther would have done such a horrible thing. That is like really wicked to do that. But is it? Let me read from Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 11. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king the same day. The king said to the queen Esther, so this is after she had um, been granted leave to have the, the Jews defend themselves, and they killed a number of Persians who were plotting against them. The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men. And the ten sons of Haman, citadel of Susa, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. Here's the pious, lovely Queen Esther. If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow again, i.e., kill a bunch of people. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. This is pious Queen Esther. So in that, I can see that there actually is very strong similarities between Herodotus' view of Amestris being quite brutal in some ways in her um, treatment of certain Persians and Esther's treatment of certain Persians. All right, so That's the history of it. But what's the story? Because the story is actually really an amazing story. So the basics of the story is this. We start out with this party. And Vashti, being a good feminist, is saying, no way. I'm going to flaunt my body before a bunch of drunken men. So she's ousted. And then uh, the king's advisors say that you should select another wife. So he sends out and captures all these young women. And then for a year, they're trained in beauty, amongst other things, um, and then finally selected uh, at the end. Now Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, is um, fairly high up in the court. He sits at the gate, and he overhears a conspiracy against the king and tells, warns the king about it. So this is all like Hollywood stuff. So he's, he, he warns the king about this uh, these conspirators, and the conspirators are dealt with. And for some reason, the king forgets to honor Mordecai for this act. Or maybe he wasn't told specifically who it was, but it was written down in the, in the annals of the king. Um, Haman, another of the king's high advisors, does not like Mordecai or the Jews because Haman is quite arrogant and thinks that everyone should bow to him when they walk by. And most people, being Persian uh, and obedient Persians, do that, but the Jews won't. And this kind of reminds us of uh, Emily talking about in Daniel, the Jews said, I'm not going to bow myself to anything other than God. And so Mordecai said, no, I'm not going to bow before you, Haman, and was pretty obstinate. And that really ticked off Haman. And so Haman then plots to kill Mordecai, and not only Mordecai, but all Jews, because it's the Jews and their ways that is causing this affront to his pride and stature. Um, And so he goes to the king and asks for permission to kill the Jews. So Mordecai finds out about this, and, and Esther, who is now the queen, has the ability to go before the king and ask for this to be undone. And so she does. And it's um, a very cool kind of way she does it. But she basically says, let's, let's have a meal. I'll cook you guys a meal. I want to have you and Haman come to the meal. And she does this for three days. And each time the king is really pleased with her and says, just tell me what you want. I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And Haman has got this plot out. He's going to hang, he's actually going to impale Mordecai on one of these poles in front of Haman's house to show you don't do this to him. So he's got the pole already built and standing in front of his house to impale Mordecai on it um, at the the king's permission. And then Esther comes to the king and finally after three meals, sorry, um, backtrack a little bit because this is important. The king finds out about Mordecai's helping him in this plot, um, helping him to to uncover the conspirators in this plot. And so the king asks Haman what should be done for someone who is so honorable as to defend the king. And Haman, of course, thinks it's all about him because he's so arrogant and prideful. And so he says, you know, bring the king's best horse, bring his best robe and his rings and put it on the guy and march him in front of all the people of Susa and honor him, crying out, you know, this is done for the one the king wants to honor. And so the king says to Haman, yeah, go and do that for Mordecai. And so Haman is already stung once, and now he's really mad. So it, as Esther sets a trap for Haman in these meals, she begins to get the king's favor. And then he says to her, well, what would, what would you have me do? And then she she explains that Haman has asked to kill the Jews, all the Jews of Persia, and by the way, I'm a Jew, and that means he's going to kill me. And the king got furious and had Haman impaled on his own pole. So the story is a great story. I mean, it's perfect. It's got the humble, humble being exalted, both Mordecai and Esther, Mordecai being a humble Jew who refuses to bow, and he's exalted and and taken before the, the palace on a royal horse with royal robes. Esther's honored and brought up to be queen, even though I think the path there was probably a little bit rough, but she was then made queen. And in Persian history, the queen was quite honored. So at that point, she was a very honored person. We see justice coming to the unjust. We see Haman impaled on the pole that he meant for Mordecai. So these, this story is, is the perfect story. But what's the takeaway? Because this is a Jewish story, but it's in our Bible. And that's the more difficult thing, because it, it, it tells a lot. And if we read it in the reality of what it is, there wasn't, there wasn't purity and, and niceness written all through it. Esther had to go through what we would consider sexual sin to become exalted. It wasn't her choice, but it wasn't a pure root to being in this place. So maybe in a sense, rather than whitewashing it, we can look at this idea of the Me Too movement today and the fact that people are placed in these really horrible positions. And yet, even in the midst of that, they can honor God and find a place to bless him and bless his people. Esther is a Jewish hero an Israeli hero first. But there's a famous saying in the, in the book, and I think that's the main takeaway. Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you have been born for such a time as this? That is probably the takeaway from the book. So the question is, who knows but that you have been born for such a time as this? There are things that I think God is calling each one of us to do in the way we live out our lives. And it may take us through a route that is not easy. It may take us through a route where our rights are restricted. It may take us through a route where we are dishonored and uh, threatened and perhaps even killed. But there's an opportunity for us to raise God high and to raise his justice and his kingdom, even in this day. The politics around the world are no better than they were in this time. And God's kingdom is not as, as lived out as some of us often think it is. God's kingdom is here, and yet it is to come. And he's called us to demonstrate it and to bring it. So who knows? But you were born for such a time as this, in this time, in this political situation, in this economic situation, in this culture or another culture, in the rise up of fading and coming in and going out empires. As an American, I look at what's happening in America and it grieves me. And I, I look at, as a person who's interested in history, I look at the rise and fall of empires. The American empire is about to fall, because a house divided against itself can't stand. England is following quickly in America's footsteps, dividing ourselves. So who knows, but that you have not been born for such a time as this, to speak into the current situation. And I'm not saying speak your political mind. There will be some of that, because the kingdom is politics. The kingdom of God is a political entity. But it's a political entity, a kingdom of love. So how can we, instead of pushing the sides apart with our own ideas of justice and and equality and rights, how can we begin to bring the sides back together with love? It's something I struggle with, I know, because I get riled up, just like all of you do, at various political things, and I speak my mind. Um, But one of the things I am attempting to do is to do that in love. And then where that's not so important, love is more important. And I can say, you know what? I might disagree with you on that. But actually, I really want to hold this relationship close. So who knows, but that you were not born for such a time as this. I know that was much more technical than you're used to hearing from me. But it is what it is. Because the book of Esther is not this easy, flowing, Book of Prophecy or Jesus' words, those kind of nice, easy things to preach on. So thank you for bearing with me. Amen.